What do Lion King, the Star Wars franchise, and the Matrix have in common? What do the Lion King, Star Wars franchise, and the Matrix have in common? Any ideas? I'll just shout it out briefly. Any ideas? They're all movies? Yeah, that's true. Good one. Here, here it is, right? That, um, they, all, they all have terrible sequels. They all have terrible sequels. In the case of Star Wars, a terrible trilogy of sequels. Uh, but Lion King 2, I don't think even made it to the cinemas. Matrix, uh, let's not go there. Uh, they all have terrible sequels. Now, a good sequel on its own is already tough to do. But when you have a sequel that needs to live up to a hype of a really, really good movie or a good set of movies, that's really, really difficult to pull off, isn't it? Now, sequels are are so difficult that the Huffington Post um, decided to repost an article on their website titled, The Ten Commandments of Writing a Great Sequel. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, there we go. So there you go, The Ten Commandments of Writing a Great Sequel. Now, I'm just going to read some of them for you just so that you can get a taste. Commandment number one, thou shall ensure that the original warrants a sequel. Commandment number five, uh, thou shalt take the original characters and develop them, move them forward. Uh, Ghostbusters did not do this. Commandment number two, thou shalt not simply remake the original, like the Karate Kid. It's hard for a sequel to beat the original. Now today, as we continue our um, Advent series, now Advent just comes from the Latin word for coming, I wonder whether we... I wonder whether we feel similarly about Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming when we compare it to his first coming that we celebrate each Christmas. I suspect for many of us, uh, if we were to gravitate to maybe one of these comings of Jesus, we would probably gravitate more naturally to think, to consider, to appreciate his first coming much more than we do his second and on one level, it's, it's understandable, right? Christmas, Christmas is so much more tangible. We know it's happened. It's in the past. We have holidays each year surrounding it. Our work often shuts down because of it. We have service, services dedicated towards it. And we're surrounded by signs, advertising, carols that point us to Christmas each and every year. In movie language, it's a real classic, right? And it's little wonder then that Jesus' first coming can take so much more of our attention than his second. Now, I wonder if that is true for you. Because it's certainly true for me. And so today in the hustle and bustle that the lead up to Christmas can so often be, it's only nine days away, folks, it's really close. My hope for us is to pause for a moment to look at God's Word and for us to look more closely at this sequel, at God's uh, plan for Jesus to return and see that it is worth waiting for. It's going to be a little bit of of a different sermon today. We're not going to be uh, spending all our time just in 2 Peter 3, though we certainly will spend a a good chunk of time, so keep it open. But we're going to go through three points that are in your outlines. And if you want to follow along, take notes. If you want to fan, it's all good. Again, three, but they're really three questions, right? What are we waiting for? How have we tried to wait? And how should we wait? So let me pray. 
before we continue uh, to hear from God's word. Heavenly Father, we uh, just want to thank you for this time to sit in your word. So just slow down in the lead up to Christmas. Waiting is so often just contrary to what we do well and naturally. And so, Father, I pray that as we think about your second coming, we think about this sequel, give us a desire to wait. May the words that we look at today in your scriptures uh, motivate us to do just that. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so let's go. First question, what are we waiting for? Now, um, what does the New Testament tell us about what to expect for the second coming? We're going to run through this kind of quickly. So I hope, um, and I hope through this, you get a really good sense of what God wants us to wait for. See, the New Testament tells us that Jesus' second coming will be definite, yet uncertain. Definite, yet uncertain. Now, uh, there are a whole bunch of verses that are going to come out in the next few sort of slides, so I'm not going to read them all out for you. Jot them down if you like, come back to them if you like. But Jesus himself promises he will return. Right? This is a promise that we see across all of the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus. Paul adds to this clearly, right? The passages, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, um, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus' second coming is mentioned nearly 300 times, which when you do the math, it kind of averages out to be one in every 13 verses. When one in every 13 verses of the New Testament speak about this second coming, that it's definitely happening, guaranteed, bank it, right? And yet, this event will also be uncertain. Now, that's not a contradiction, right? It will be uncertain in time, unexpected in time. You see, although God the Father has set an exact time, that time has not been revealed to anybody. It's going to come suddenly. Now, in our passage today on the screen, right at the bottom, we're going to see Peter describes this day like the coming of a thief. Now, I don't know about you, but um, if you were a thief and the people you were trying to steal from and rob knew exactly when and where you'd be coming, you'd be a pretty lousy thief. Now, Jesus says in Mark that nobody knows, not even the angels, not even himself knows when he's going to come back again. Only the Father does. And so the second coming, while it's definitely going to happen, it's uncertain, unexpected in time. The second coming is also personal and physical, right? It's going to be personal and physical. There are those that think um, that in some way Jesus' second coming is going to be spiritual only, or maybe symbolic only. Jesus will somehow, you know, he'll spiritually return. And perhaps he has already returned without his body and his believers. We're just going to know on the inside that he's back. Now, as interesting as that idea might be, we see pretty clearly that that can't be the case. Right? The passages in Acts, for example, makes that pretty clear. As Jesus, he's ascending physically before his very disciples' eyes, they are told that this same Jesus, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Right? Jesus' second return, his coming again, will be physical, not spiritual. It's not symbolic. And he will come back as a person, which is why it's personal. Right? He will appear as a man like he did when he first came. The New Testament also says 
that um, Jesus' second coming will be visible and triumphant. Visible and triumphant. Now, um, Jesus' second coming, right, it's going to look absolutely nothing like his first coming. In the first coming, he came in lowly circumstances. He came in humble circumstances. His first coming, the first advent, involved a manger, a baby. There was no room, right? It, it almost ended a marriage relationship. Few saw him as a baby. But Jesus' second coming is going to be really different. It's not going to be lowly. It's not going to be humble. It's going to be triumphant. Jesus won't come as a fragile baby. He will come with great power. Jesus won't be seen by just a few. We see in Revelation that every eye will see him. All peoples of the earth. And he won't be in a manger. He will come in glory with the angels with him as king. See, the second advent, this second coming, absolutely looks nothing like the first. It will be visible to all. It will be triumphant. Now, um, earlier this week, uh, a trailer was released for Marvel's next movie, Avengers Endgame. Now, who's seen the trailer? Hands up. Nice. Um, Let me show you what a Facebook friend of mine uh, posted about it. You wrote, before watching this, make sure you have a tissue to wipe the drool that will be running from your mouth. Right? Um, now, I know not everybody loves superhero movies, uh, my wife being one of them. Uh, she did like Black Panther, though. Uh, but, so you might not necessarily agree with what he said there. But one member of our church uh, who attends our Bankstown congregation, his name is Derek, he commented on this post saying, didn't have a tissue, subsequent drool was running down said mouth. See, trailers, whether you like them, like Marvel, like Avengers or not, what are they meant to do? They're, meant to, they're designed to make you drool. Well, at least metaphorically make you drool. They're meant to show snippets of the movie that is to come. They give inside knowledge and drop hints about what will be in the movie. There are entire YouTube channels that are dedicated to find these hints Uh, they call them Easter eggs for some reason, to figure out further clues about the movie that's coming. See, trailers are all about anticipation. They're all about making you drool for what is to come. And if it doesn't, well, the movie is probably not worth watching. What God has chosen to reveal to us in Scripture about Jesus' second coming is like a trailer for what is to come. As you read it, as you hear about it, um, about it suddenly yet definitely taking place, about how personal, how physical it will be, how visible, how triumphant it will be, what will your response be to this trailer? What will your response to this trailer be? Just this week, when we met as a staff team, we were sharing that we have all had moments, we've all had times where we uh, would first want to do something, experience something, see something, Uh, before Jesus comes back. I remember a Bible college professor saying desperately that he didn't want Jesus to return when he was walking to hand in his freshly printed PhD dissertation that he had just completed after five years of work, because otherwise nobody would read it. And so by asking how we respond in this trial, I'm not trying to guilt us into anything. But I want to invite you, this is an opportunity for us all to reflect. As we celebrate Jesus' first coming, how are we waiting for his second? And keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to return to that question a bit later. 
So we're up to point two now. How have we tried to wait? How have we tried to wait? Now, when I mean, when I mean we, I'm not talking about us as, as individuals. I'm not even talking about us as, as Southwest Evangelical Church. What I'm talking about is the church, super generally. Right? Everybody who would call themselves believers, whether they actually are or not, throughout history. How have we responded to knowing that Jesus will return? Really broadly, uh, I think there are four ways the church has waited uh, quite badly. And um, ironically, they all start with the letter F to remind us that they're not great responses to have. Uh, so firstly, uh, fleeing. Knowing that Jesus will return has led certain people in the church, certain parts of the church, to flee, to flee from the world around them. Right? Knowing Jesus would return, for example, in part motivated monks to leave the world behind them, escape from civilization, to withdraw, to isolate themselves. Right? Knowing Jesus would return motivated in part the, the, the Amish people to, to create their secluded community. That's not a great way to wait. Another way to wait is knowing, knowing that Jesus will return is, is, is to fight, right? To fight. Knowing Jesus will return has led certain parts of the church to fight with military force, to advance God's kingdom in certain parts of history meant to engage in literal war, right? The Crusades, maybe you've heard of it, are an example such as that, where, where this idea that Jesus is returning twisted was used to twist men and women to believe that they could cleanse the world along with Jesus' heavenly armies by might and by force. Right? That's a terrible way to wait. That's an unbiblical way to wait. Another way to wait is in folly. Right? Knowing Jesus' return has led to some folly. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, he once said, this great doctrine of the second coming has fallen into disrepute because of this tendency on the part of some to be more interested in the who and the when of the second coming rather than in the fact of the second coming. Right? You get that? There are people who have engaged in more and are more interested in the, in the who and the when of the second coming rather than in the fact of the second coming. Right? There, there have been periods in Christian history as recently as the last few decades that people have poured time, energy, resource into determining how and when Jesus will return. Growing up, right, I had a neighbor on the other side of our street. He, she, she, she knew our family were believers, and she, would, she came one morning to knock, and she had in her hand uh, this typewritten book, like, you know, these typewriters? A typewriting written book of all the notes that she had made um, where she was absolutely sure that the events in her world history matched up with some of the signs that she read in the Bible. She was so certain that Jesus would return by a certain date. Now, this book was so thick, it's probably thicker than the Bibles in the, in the chairs, in the pews in front of you, right? Uh, and so she, she came, she told me, Dom, uh, Jesus is going to return before you finish your HSC, without doubt. Guaranteed. Um, and I recently had my 10-year high school reunion, Obviously, we're curious. Obviously, we want to know. But to dedicate all this time, all this energy to what we're told is only known by the Father, to somehow deceive oneself to thinking that we can know what the Father only knows, that's, that's folly. That's foolish. It'd be like those YouTubers who create those Easter egg videos 
to, to, to them, seeing the, from seeing the trailer, they spend the rest of their year in between the release of the trailer to the movie to figuring out the exact script of the movie. Right? That's stupid. You don't do that. Or to extend the example of the passage uh, today that, that Peter describes, it's coming like a thief. It'd be like spending your entire life trying to work out when you might be robbed. It's foolish to wait in this way. So we've gone through fleeing, fighting, folly. And the fourth uh, not-so-great way that the church has waited is forgetting. Forgetting. We forget that Jesus is coming back again. Now, I hope you kept the passage in 2 Peter 3 open, because we're going to look at it now. You see, friends, forgetting was something uh, the Apostle Peter was really concerned about. So much so that he dedicates this entire chapter writing about it. The followers Peter were writing to, they were at risk about forgetting about Jesus' return because there were people from among them that had actually forgotten. In verse 5 in chapter 3, have a look, Peter describes them as deliberately forgetting. And these folk who were once among them, they're now convinced that Christ was not coming and were trying to persuade the others of this same thought. Right? Their claim is in verse 4. Right? Have a look. Verse 4, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. What are they saying? They're saying that Jesus hasn't done anything. Nothing has changed. He said that he will return. He's not here. So why on earth, from their perspective, should we expect anything different going into the future? Peter describes these, men, these people as scoffers, who in verse 3 are really only motivated by their own evil desires. Now, if you looked at the previous chapter, chapter 2, and don't worry about uh, going there, we will see some of those evil desires, right? Peter calls them experts of greed and have eyes full of adultery in verse 14 of chapter 2. They, they appeal to the lustful desires of the flesh and bring the way of truth into disrepute. In verse 21, Peter says they once knew the way of righteousness and have since turned their backs on it. And so Peter is appropriately concerned. If there were such people here right now, I'm sure you might be concerned too. And so Peter in chapter 3, he wants to remind them in verse 1. He wants to recall the words spoken in the past, verse 2, so that in verse 8 they do not forget. And so what sort of things does Peter write to help remind them that Jesus is coming? Well, he goes to the past. He goes right back to Genesis to remind these believers what the future of these scoffers will be. He goes right back to the past to remind these believers of what the future of these scoffers will be. Right? Have, have a read of verses 5 to 7 again in chapter 3. Verses 5 to 7. Peter writes, But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed, and by that same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now what's he saying? Peter's pretty much going, 
You're all believers. You believe God created the world, and it seemed like nothing terrible was going to happen. But then what happened in Noah's day? The very waters that God made were then used to destroy and judge the ungodly. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. These scoffers, Peter, Peter's basically writing, they might think nothing has happened, that nothing will happen, but just like the flood was God's divine judgment on the ungodly, Jesus will return. He will return to judge. You can bank on it. See, friends, Peter's saying to these believers, don't forget. The fate of these scoffers and their forgetfulness and their evil desires are exactly the same as those that were similar in Noah's day. They will be judged. Now, one of the things we ought to address from a chapter like 2 Peter 3 is the idea that um, God's judgment seems to mean absolute destruction. It, It almost sounds like complete annihilation. Right? The elements will be destroyed by fire. Earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That God will somehow replace this earth with a new one after annihilating the old one. Now, is that really going to happen? Um, just quickly, I don't, I don't think so. And here's a few thoughts as to why. Firstly, Peter writes about being destroyed by fire. And, and in the Old Testament, being destroyed by fire, this image is, is, is mostly metaphorical. It's most likely that being destroyed by fire isn't a literal, real fire that burns people to the ground. Another thing, uh, a reason to think that it's not going to be a complete annihilation is is the passage like the one we looked at last week with Pastor Marshall. Romans 8. It talks about creation being liberated from its bondage to decay. That that doesn't sound like creation is going to be destroyed and then replaced. Creation sounds like it's going to be renewed and transformed. And the last thing to say is this. When Jesus rose, what happened? There seems to be a link between Jesus' former body and his his resurrected one. The tomb was empty. The body was no longer there. Jesus was recognizable. So Jesus' body, it wasn't destroyed. It wasn't remade, but it was transformed. And it makes a lot of sense that this is the pattern that will continue. And so it seems like the Bible doesn't point to a complete annihilation, but a renewing of the old to something new. But coming back to what Peter is trying to say, right? what is he saying? He's saying, don't forget to these believers. Remember the past to know the future of what these scoffers will be. Their fate, their fate is judgment. Their fate is destruction. But he also gives a positive reason. Keep going, verse 8. Right? Peter says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter's basically saying, don't forget, because there's a really, really good reason why he hasn't come back yet. It's not because he can't. It's not because Jesus is unable to keep his promise, like those scoffers seem to think. But it's that he won't. Not yet. He's being patient. He's extending mercy. You see, church, every day that Jesus has not returned shows his timing and what he thinks about what is quick and what is slow, it's a little different to our own. Every day that Jesus has not returned is evidence of God's patience 
of his, of his extending of mercy. Every day Jesus has not returned means he is not done rescuing people. And so Peter says, don't forget, Jesus is returning. And his delay shows how much he still wants people to come to repentance. There is still time. And so maybe you're here today and you're checking out Christianity. Maybe it's your first time here. Maybe you've been here for years. In the midst of everything we've spoken about, I hope, I really, really hope that you see the patience and mercy that God extends to you. He will return. It's inevitable. And so can I encourage you, keep keep coming. Ask your questions. Take that next step, whatever it is, and explore more about who Jesus is. And we're grateful that you're here with us. But if you're a Jesus follower here today, it's unlikely that you're going to flee from the world knowing that Jesus is going to return. That's pretty unlikely. It's unlikely that you're going to you know, take up arms knowing that Jesus will return. It's unlikely that you're going to start writing a book about when exactly, precisely, Jesus will return. But if you're anything like me, while we not, might not willingly or deliberately forget like the scoffers did in 2 Peter 3, I think there's another kind of forgetting that I think we're, we're perhaps more likely to do. The fact, the fact is, the fact that Peter had to write this chapter to believers means he feared that even faithful Jesus followers could begin to absorb ideas from the people and the culture around them, even unintentionally, that could steer them away from the truth. That's a legitimate fear of Peter's. And if it's true for believers that were around not long after Jesus' resurrection, how much more is it true for us? See, we can forget the times we're in, can't we? We're in the last days. That's what Peter says in verse 3. We're in an era of, in God's epic plan where there's only one big event left. And that's for Jesus to return. And yet we forget this. In our forgetfulness, we, we turn good or great things that God has designed to bring maximum enjoyment in its um, temporariness, if that's a word. And we make them more permanent. We make them more prominent than God designed it to be. Let me give you an example. Um, Jody and I have, have uh, now been married for a year, which is really exciting. It's been really great. At least for me, it's been great. I don't know about her. But it's also been really great in the last month or so to, to attend um, a number of different weddings of friends and to hear all these reminders about what marriage ought to be. There was one particular wedding message where the speaker talked about the couple being like two bottom corners of a triangle right? and God being the top corner. And he was saying that the only way to get closer in the way God designed marriage is for them to travel up the sides of the triangle towards God, but also towards each other. Pretty good, right? But that made me reflect. There have been many instances in the last year that I have made our marriage just about us, almost excluding God. And so even though marriage at its best is when we're moving closer to God, and I, and I know that, I, I know that, 
more often than I'd like to admit, our marriage reflected otherwise. We made it more prominent. We made it more permanent. And if we're going to continue down that path, the only place it's going to lead is to hurt and disappointment. Friends, marriage is good, but it's temporary. Our careers are good, but it's temporary. Family is good, but it's temporary. Friendships are good. It's temporary. Holidays, experiences, hobbies, traveling, they're good, but they're temporary. Now, the answer to that, then, isn't to all of a sudden abandon all these temporary things. Right? It's not like there are two options. If it's permanent, keep it. If it's temporary, ditch it. That's, that's not it. They're good and great things, obviously. Right? To state the obvious, they're good and great, they're good and great. So what, do you, what should we do? We should enjoy them. Dedicate time to it, lots of time even. Treat them as God's gracious blessings to us, because they are. But be measured. Remember these things are best enjoyed in these last days when they're temporary. Because when Jesus returns, things are only going to get even better. And so we shouldn't flee, we shouldn't fight, we shouldn't be foolish, nor should we forget. So how should we wait? We're up to our third point. How should we wait? Now let's come back to the question we asked earlier. If God has given us a trailer of what Jesus' second coming, his second advent is going to be like, what will your response be? What will our response be? Now Peter, in the rest of this chapter, he says a lot about it. But for the sake of time, we're not going to go through it all. But let me summarize it with, with one phrase. What should our response be? How should we wait? We should wait imminently. Imminently. Now, I can't take credit for this suggestion. It's far from my own. It's a word that's been used to describe how we should wait by Christians infinitely smarter than me for ages and ages and ages. But to wait imminently means to wait as if Jesus' second coming, it's impending. It could take place at any time. Like I said before, this is the last big event in God's epic plan to save his people. It could come at any moment, and, and he could bring his, his plan to completion. But I think it's helpful because, what it, because of what it also doesn't say. Right? See, church, we don't wait as if Jesus will return immediately, right? as, in, as in right this very second. Because if we did, I reckon it would, we would just kind of always be impatient. Because if we're expecting Jesus to come like right now through the door, we're just always going to be impatient because it's not happening. But we also shouldn't wait as if Jesus won't return in our lifetimes. Because if we did, while you know, we wouldn't be impatient, humanly speaking, we'd probably just become lazy. See, I think waiting imminently, like it can happen at any moment, I think it's a kind of an in-between to those two responses. It doesn't mean it will be immediate, leading to impatience. It doesn't mean it, will ha- it can't happen soon either, which will lead to laziness. Instead, God, by His Spirit, uses the fact that it could take place at any time powerfully for our good and for our holiness. And that's the point Peter makes for the rest of the chapter. In fact, pretty much every time in the New Testament Jesus' return is mentioned, whether Paul mentions it, John mentions it, Peter mentions it, Jesus mentions it. The purpose is always to get us passionate about living now. 
here. See, the fact that Jesus is returning at any time is a call to live holy and godly lives. Why? Why do we do that? See, when Jesus returns, what's going to happen? There's going to be a world with a transformed order, a new heaven, a new earth, one that will barely resemble our present broken world. And if we're imminently waiting for Jesus' return, it's inevitable that God will also grow our desire and our longing to begin that transformation towards holiness now with his help in order that we're preparing for what is to come. If we, if we didn't do that, if we, weren't, if we weren't gearing towards holiness and godliness, it would almost be like knowing you were going to move to another country that has a foreign culture and a foreign language, but you don't want to do anything right now to bridge the gap. You may have heard um, about the arrests being made of a particular church in China this week. For this particular church, uh, its name, Early Rain Covenant Church, you know, it's not just been this week. They've experienced ongoing difficulties this entire year. But this last week has been particularly bad. Since last Sunday, the government has arrested over 100 members of their church. They've gone to people's homes. They've guarded the entrances and the exits of the church building with police and large trucks. The authorities, in some cases, have traveled across the country and across provinces to find certain members. All the elders have been arrested. The senior pastor and his wife have been charged on incitement to subvert the state. For the few members that have since been released, there have been evidence of beatings being trampled upon. There have been accounts of food, water, and sleep deprivation. And this persecution has since moved not just from this one church, it's now spread to other churches and other Bible colleges. Now, was this a surprise to the senior pastor? It wasn't. Actually, back in September, in preparation for an occasion such as this, he wrote a statement. And this is all available online, and it's been translated, by the way. Uh, You can go to chinapartnership.org if you want to read it, if you want to pray for what's going on. They're updating live. But let me read for you um, a translated excerpt. I'll put it on the screen. The pastor, his name's Wang Yi, he wrote, Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. This is a pastor who I'm sure has had the thought of Jesus returning and the judgment that will come in his mind and in his heart all year. We see it right at the beginning of that quote. What has that led to? Has it led to anger? Bitterness? Resentment? I wouldn't blame him if that was the case. But he writes that the Lord has filled him with compassion and grief towards his enemies. He prays for patience and wisdom in order to take the gospel to them. That's incredible stuff. 
See, Pastor Wang Yi, yearning for Jesus' return is embodying the holy and godly living that we see in 2 Peter 3, isn't he? And that is completely different to the scoffers that Peter talks about. You see, the scoffers, what are they doing? They're acting out of evil desires because they believe that Jesus isn't coming back. Peter, in the previous chapter, he describes them as people with spots and defects. But he urges the believers to do the exact opposite. See, just as the scoffers are skeptical about Jesus coming back, and that leads them to live immorally, are waiting for Jesus to return, knowing that he will return, should lead to holy and godly living. It's the reverse. And Peter calls the Christians to be spotless and without defect. See, the contrast could not be clearer. And we see that so evidently with this pastor. See, knowing Jesus will return makes all the difference, friends, as we approach to celebrate Jesus' first coming. Would that stir in us to wait imminently for his second? Because this is a sequel truly worth waiting for. Let me pray. Father God, we, uh, we want to yearn just as the scriptures seem to, to point us to the fact that you are coming back. Father, we're sorry that uh, so often this really is on the back burner. That if we were to prioritize one of the comings, it would definitely be the first. And we live like forgetful people. And so, Father, I pray as we are so close to celebrating Jesus' coming for the very first time at Christmas... Would that be a constant reminder to to, to help us to remember for you coming back again? Help us to yearn for it, to to see how glorious and how, 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 how better things will be. Enable us by your strength to live in light of that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.